Book three, chapters one through five of On War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz. Translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book three of Strategy in General. Chapter one Strategy. In the second chapter of the second book, strategy has been defined as the employment of the battle as the means towards the attainment of the object of the war. Properly speaking, it has to do with nothing but the battle, but its theory must include in this consideration the instrument of this real activity, the armed force, in itself and in its principal relations, for the battle is fought by it, and shows its effects upon it in turn. It must be well acquainted with the battle itself, as far as relates to its possible results, and those mental and moral powers which are the most important in the use of the same. Strategy is the employment of the battle to gain the end of the war. It must therefore give an aim to the whole military action, which must be in accordance with the object of the war. In other words, strategy forms the plan of the war, and to this end, it links together the series of acts which are to lead to the final decision. That is to say, it makes the plans for the separate campaigns and regulates the combats to be fought in each. As these are all things which to a great extent can only be determined on conjectures, some of which turn out to be incorrect, while a number of other arrangements pertaining to details cannot be made at all beforehand, it follows as a matter of course that strategy must go with the army to the field in order to arrange particulars on the spot, and to make modifications in the general plan, which incessantly become necessary in war. Strategy can, therefore, never take its hand from the work for a moment. That this, however, has not always been the view taken is evident from the former custom of keeping strategy in the cabinet, and not with the army, a thing only allowable if the cabinet is so near to the army that it can be taken for the chief headquarters of the army. Theory will therefore attend on strategy in the determination of its plans, or, as we may more properly say, it will throw a light on things in themselves, and on their relations to each other, and bring out prominently the little that there is of principle or rule. If we recall to mind from the first chapter how many things of the highest importance war touches upon, we may conceive that a consideration of all requires a rare grasp of mind. A prince or general who knows exactly how to organize his war according to his object and means, who does neither too little nor too much, gives by that the greatest proof of his genius. But the effects of this talent are exhibited not so much by the invention of new modes of action, which might strike the eye immediately, as in the successful final result of the whole. It is the exact fulfillment of silent suppositions, it is the noiseless harmony of the whole action which we should admire, and which only makes itself known in the total result. Inquirer who, tracing back from the final result, does not perceive the signs of that harmony, is one who is apt to seek for genius where it is not, and where it cannot be found. The means and forms which strategy uses are in fact so extremely simple, so well known by their constant repetition, that it only appears ridiculous to sound common sense when it hears critics so frequently speaking of them with high-flown emphasis. Turning a flank, which has been done a thousand times, is regarded here as a proof of the most brilliant genius, there as a proof of the most profound penetration, indeed even of the most comprehensive knowledge. Can there be in the book world more absurd productions?
It is still more ridiculous if, in addition to this, we reflect that the same critic, in accordance with prevalent opinion, excludes all moral forces from theory, and will not allow it to be concerned with anything but the material forces, so that all must be confined to a few mathematical relations of equilibrium and preponderance, of time and space, and a few lines and angles. If it were nothing more than this, then out of such a miserable business there would not be a scientific problem for even a schoolboy. But let us admit, there is no question here about scientific formulas and problems. The relations of material things are all very simple. The right comprehension of the moral forces which come into play is more difficult. Still, even in respect to them, it is only in the highest branches of strategy that moral complications and a great diversity of qualities and relations are to be looked for, only at that point where strategy borders on political science, or rather, where the two become one, and there, as we have before observed, they have more influence on the how much and how little is to be done than on the form of execution. Where the latter is the principal question, as in the single acts, both great and small in war, the moral quantities are already reduced to a very small number. Thus, then, in strategy everything is very simple, but not on that account very easy. Once it is determined from the relations of the state what should and may be done by war, then the way to it is easy to find. But to follow that way straight forward, to carry out the plan without being obliged to deviate from it a thousand times by a thousand varying influences, requires, besides great strength of character, great clearness and steadiness of mind. And out of a thousand men who are remarkable, some for mind, others for penetration, others again for boldness or strength of will, perhaps not one will combine in himself all those qualities which are required to raise a man above mediocrity in the career of a general. It may sound strange, but for all who know war in this respect, it is a fact beyond doubt that much more strength of will is required to make an important decision in strategy than in tactics. In the latter we are hurried on with the moment. A commander feels himself borne along in a strong current, against which he durst not contend without the most destructive consequences. He suppresses the rising fears, and boldly ventures further. In strategy, where all goes on at a slower rate, there is more room allowed for our own apprehensions and those of others, for objections and remonstrances, consequently also for unreasonable regrets. And as we do not see things in strategy, as we do at least half of them in tactics with the living eye, but everything must be conjectured and assumed, the convictions produced are less powerful. The consequence is that most generals, when they should act, remain stuck fast in bewildering doubts. Now let us cast a glance at history upon Frederick the Great's campaign of 1760, celebrated for its fine marches and manoeuvres, a perfect masterpiece of strategic skill, as critics tell us. Is there really anything to drive us out of our wits with admiration in the king's first trying to turn Down's right flank, then his left, then again his right, and such? Are we to see profound wisdom in this? No, that we cannot if we are to decide naturally and without affectation. What we rather admire, above all, is the sagacity of the king in this respect, that while pursuing a great object with very limited means, he undertook nothing beyond his powers, and just enough to gain his object. The sagacity of the general is visible not only in this campaign, but throughout all the three wars of the great king. To bring Silesia into the safe harbour of a well-guaranteed peace was his object. 
at the head of a small state, which was like other states in most things, and only ahead of them in some branches of administration, he could not be an Alexander, and, as Charles XII, he would only, like him, have broken his head. We find, therefore, in the whole of his conduct of war, a controlled power, always well balanced, and never wanting in energy, which in the most critical moments rises to astonishing deeds, and the next moment oscillates quietly on again, in subordination to the play of the most subtle political influences. Neither vanity, thirst for glory, nor vengeance could make him deviate from his course, and this course alone it is which brought him to a fortunate termination of the contest. These few words do but scant justice to this phase of the genius of the great general. The eyes must be fixed carefully on the extraordinary issue of the struggle, and the causes which brought about that issue must be traced out, in order thoroughly to understand that nothing but the king's penetrating eye brought him safely out of all dangers. This is one feature in this great commander which we admire in the campaign of 1760, and in all others, but in this especially, because in none did he keep the balance even against such a superior hostile force with such a small sacrifice. Another feature relates to the difficulty of execution. Marches to turn a flank, right or left, are easily combined. The idea of keeping a small force always well concentrated to be able to meet the enemy on equal terms at any point, to multiply a force by rapid movement, is as easily conceived as expressed. The mere contrivance in these points, therefore, cannot excite our admiration, and with respect to such things, there is nothing further than to admit that they are simple. But let a general try to do these things like Frederick the Great. Long afterwards, authors who were eyewitnesses have spoken of the danger, indeed of the imprudence of the king's camps, and doubtless at the time he pitched them the danger appeared three times as great as afterwards. It was the same with his marches. Under the eyes, nay, often under the cannon of the enemy's army, these camps were taken up, these marches made, not from want of prudence, but because in Down's system, in his mode of drawing up his army, in the responsibility which pressed upon him, and in his character, Frederick found that security which justified his camps and marches. But it required the king's boldness, determination, and strength of will to see things in this light, and not to be led astray and intimidated by the danger of which, thirty years after, people still wrote and spoke. Few generals in this situation would have believed these simple strategic means to be practicable. Another difficulty in execution lay in this, that the king's army in this campaign was constantly in motion. Twice it marched by wretched crossroads, from the Elbe to Silesia, in rear of Down, and pursued by Lasky, beginning of July, beginning of August. It required to be always ready for battle, and its marches had to be organized with a degree of skill which necessarily called forth a proportionate amount of exertion. Although attended and delayed by thousands of wagons, still its subsistence was extremely difficult. In Silesia, for eight days before the Battle of Lignitz, it had constantly to march, defiling alternately right and left in front of the enemy. This costs great fatigue, and entails great privations. Is it to be supposed that all of this could have been done without producing great friction in the machine? Can the mind of a great commander elaborate such movements, with the same ease as the hand of a land surveyor uses the astrolabe? 
does not the sight of the sufferings of their hungry, thirsty comrades pierce the hearts of the commander and his generals a thousand times? Must not the murmurs and doubts which these cause reach his ear? Has an ordinary man the courage to demand such sacrifices, and would not such efforts most certainly demoralize the army, break up the bands of discipline, and, in short, undermine its military virtue, if firm reliance on the greatness and infallibility of the commander did not compensate for all. Here, therefore, it is that we should pay respect. It is these miracles of execution which we should admire. But it is impossible to realize all this in its full force, without a foretaste of it by experience. He who only knows war from books, or the drill-ground, cannot realize the whole effect of this counterpoise in action. We beg him, therefore, to accept from us, on faith, and trust all that he is unable to supply from any personal experiences of his own. This illustration is intended to give more clearness to the course of our ideas, and in closing this chapter we will only briefly observe that in our exposition of strategy we shall describe those separate subjects which appear to us the most important, whether of a moral or material nature, then proceed from the simple to the complex, and conclude with the inner connection of the whole act of war, in other words, with the plan for a war or campaign. Observation In an earlier manuscript of the first book are the following pages, endorsed by the author himself to be used for the first chapter of the second book. The projected revision of that chapter not having been made, the passages referred to are introduced here in full. By the mere assemblage of armed forces at a particular point, a battle there becomes possible, but does not always take place. Is that possibility now to be regarded as a reality, and therefore an effective thing? Certainly, it is so by its results, and these effects, whatever they may be, can never fail. 1. Possible combats are, on account of their results, to be looked upon as real ones. If a detachment is sent away to cut off the retreat of a flying enemy, and the enemy surrenders in consequence without further resistance, still it is through the combat which is offered to him by this detachment sent after him that he is brought to his decision. If part of our army occupies an enemy's province, which was undefended, and thus deprives the enemy of very considerable means of keeping up the strength of his army, it is entirely through the battle which our detached body gives the enemy to expect, in case he seeks to recover the lost province, that we remain in possession of the same. In both cases, therefore, the mere possibility of a battle has produced results, and it is therefore to be classed amongst actual events. Suppose that in these cases the enemy has opposed our troops, with others superior in force, and thus forced ours to give up their object without a combat, then certainly our plan has failed, but the battle which we offered at either of those points has not on that account been without effect, for it attracted the enemy's forces to that point, and in case our whole undertaking has done us harm, it cannot be said that these positions, these possible battles, have been attended with no results. Their effects, then, are similar to those of a lost battle. In this manner we may see that the destruction of the enemy's military forces, the overthrow of the enemy's power, is only to be done through the effect of battle, whether it be that it actually takes place, or that it is merely offered and not accepted. 2. Twofold object of the combat. But these effects are of two kinds, direct and indirect. They are of the latter if other things intrude themselves and become the object of the combat. 
things which cannot be regarded as the destruction of the enemy's force, but only leading up to it, certainly by a circuitous road, but with so much the greater effect. The possession of provinces, towns, fortresses, roads, bridges, magazines, and such, may be the immediate object of a battle, but never the ultimate one. Things of this description can never be looked upon as otherwise than a means of gaining greater superiority, so as at last to offer battle to the enemy in such a way that it will be impossible for him to accept it. Therefore, all these things must only be regarded as intermediate links, steps, as it were, leading up to the effectual principle, but never as the principle itself. 3. Example In 1814, by the capture of Bonaparte's capital, the object of the war was attained. The political divisions which had their roots in Paris came into active operation, and an enormous split left the power of the Emperor to collapse of itself. Nevertheless, the point of view from which we must look at all this, that through these causes the forces and defensive means of Bonaparte were suddenly and very much diminished, the superiority of the Allies therefore just in the same measure increased, and any further resistance then became impossible. It was this impossibility which produced the peace with France. If we suppose the forces of the Allies at that moment diminished to a like extent through external causes, if the superiority vanishes, then at the same time vanishes also all the effect and importance of the taking of Paris. We have gone through this chain of argument in order to show that this is the natural and only true view of the thing from which it derives its importance. It leads always back to the question what at any given moment of the war or campaign will be the probable result of the great or small combats which the two sides might offer to each other. In the consideration of a plan for a campaign, this question only is decisive as to the measures which are to be taken all through from the very commencement. 4. When this view is not taken, then a false value is given to other things. If we do not accustom ourselves to look upon war, and the single campaigns in a war, as a chain which is all composed of battles strung together, one of which always brings on another, if we adopt the idea that the taking of a certain geographical point, the occupation of an undefended province, is in itself anything, then we are very likely to regard it as an acquisition which we may retain, and if we look at it so, and not as a term in the whole series of events, we do not ask ourselves whether this possession may not lead to greater disadvantages hereafter. How often we find this mistake recurring in military history. We might say that, just as in commerce, the merchant cannot set apart and place in security gains from one single transaction by itself. So, in war, a single advantage cannot be separated from the result of the whole. Just as the former must always operate with the whole bulk of his means, just so in war, only the sum total will decide on the advantage or disadvantage of each item. If the mind's eye is always directed upon the series of combats, so far as they can be seen beforehand, then it is always looking in the right direction, and thereby the motion of the force acquires that rapidity. That is to say, willing and doing acquire that energy which is suitable to the matter, and which is not to be thwarted or turned aside by extraneous influences. Chapter 2. Elements of Strategy the causes which condition the use of the combat in strategy may be easily divided into elements of different kinds, such as the moral, physical, mathematical, geographical, 
and statistical elements. The first class includes all that can be called forth by moral qualities and effects. To the second belong the whole mass of the military force, its organization, the proportion of the three arms, and such and such. To the third, the angle of the lines of operation, the concentric and eccentric movements, in as far as their geometrical nature has any value in the calculation. To the fourth, the influences of country, such as commanding points, hills, rivers, woods, roads, and such and such. Lastly, to the fifth, all the means of supply. The separation of these things once for all in the mind does good in giving clearness and helping to estimate at once, at a higher or lower value, the different classes as we pass onwards. For in considering them separately, many lose of themselves their borrowed importance. One feels, for instance, quite plainly that the value of a base of operations, even if we look at nothing in it but its relative position to the line of operations, depends much less in that simple form, on the geometrical element of the angle which they form with one another, than on the nature of the roads and the country through which they pass. But to treat strategy according to these elements would be the most unfortunate idea that could be conceived, for these elements are generally manifold and intimately connected with each other in every single operation of war. We should lose ourselves in the most soulless analysis and as if in a horrid dream, we should be forever trying in vain to build up an arch to connect this base of abstractions with facts belonging to the real world. Heaven preserve every theorist from such an undertaking. We shall keep to the world of things in their totality, and not pursue our analysis further than is necessary from time to time to give distinctness to the idea which we wish to impart, and which has come to us not by a speculative investigation, but through the impression made by the realities of war in their entirety. Chapter 3. Moral Forces We must return again to this subject, which is touched upon in the third chapter of the second book, because moral forces are amongst the most important subjects in war. They form the spirit which permeates the whole being of war. These forces fasten themselves soonest and with the greatest affinity onto the will which puts in motion and guides the whole mass of powers, uniting with it, as it were, in one stream, because this is a moral force itself. Unfortunately, they will escape from all book analysis, for they will neither be brought into numbers nor into classes, and require to be both seen and felt. The spirit and other moral qualities which animate an army, a general, or governments, public opinion in provinces in which war is raging, the moral effect of a victory or a defeat, are things which in themselves very, very much in their nature, and which also, according as they stand with regard to our object and our relations, may have an influence in different ways. Although little or nothing can be said about these things in books, still they belong to the theory of the art of war as much as everything else which constitutes war. For I must here once more repeat that it is a miserable philosophy if, according to the old plan, we establish rules and principles wholly regardless of all moral forces, and then, as soon as these forces make their appearance, we begin to count exceptions, which we begin to establish as it were theoretically, that is, make into rules, or if we resort to an appeal to genius, which is above all rules, thus giving out by implication not only that rules were only made for fools, but also that they themselves are no better than folly. 
even if the theory of the art of war does no more in reality than recall these things to remembrance showing the necessity of allowing to the moral forces their full value and of always taking them into consideration by doing so it extends its borders over the region of immaterial forces and by establishing that point of view condemns beforehand every one who would endeavour to justify himself before its judgment seat by the mere physical relations of forces further out of regard to all other so-called rules theory cannot banish the moral forces beyond its frontier because the effects of the physical forces and the moral are completely fused and are not to be decomposed like a metal alloy by a chemical process in every rule relating to the physical forces theory must present to the mind at the same time the share which the moral powers will have in it if it would not be led to categorical propositions at one time too timid and contracted at another too dogmatical and wide even the most matter-of-fact theories have without knowing it strayed over into this moral kingdom for as an example the effects of a victory cannot in any way be explained without taking into consideration the moral impressions and therefore the most of the subjects which we shall go through in this book are composed half of physical half of moral causes and effects and we may say the physical are almost no more than the wooden handle whilst the moral are the noble metal the real bright polished weapon the value of the moral powers and their frequently incredible influence are best exemplified by history and this is the most generous and purest nourishment which the mind of the general can extract from it at the same time it is to be observed that it is less by demonstrations critical examinations and learned treaties than sentiments general impressions and single flashing sparks of truth which yield the seeds of knowledge that are to fertilize the mind we might go through the most important moral phenomena in war and with all the care of a diligent professor try what we could impart about each either good or bad but as in such a method one slides too much into the commonplace and trite whilst real mind quickly makes its escape in analysis the end is that one gets imperceptibly to the relation of things which everybody knows we prefer therefore to remain here more than usually incomplete and rhapsodical content to have drawn attention to the importance of the subject in a general way and to have pointed out the spirit in which the views given in this book have been conceived chapter four the chief moral powers these are the talents of the commander the military virtue of the army its national feeling which of these is the most important no one can tell in a general way for it is very difficult to say anything in general of their strength and still more difficult to compare the strength of one with that of another the best plan is not to undervalue any of them a fault which human judgment is prone to sometimes on one side sometimes on another in its whimsical oscillations it is better to satisfy ourselves of the undeniable efficacy of these three things by sufficient evidence from history it is true however that in modern times the armies of european states have arrived very much at a par as regards to discipline and fitness for service and that the conduct of war has as philosophers would say naturally developed itself thereby becoming a method common as it were to all armies so that even from commanders there is nothing further to be expected in the way of application of special means of art in the limited sense such as frederick the second's oblique order hence it cannot be denied that as matters now stand greater scope is afforded for the influence of national spirit 
and habituation of an army to war. A long peace may again alter all this. The national spirit of an army, enthusiasm, fanatical zeal, faith, opinion, displays itself most in mountain warfare, where every one down to the common soldier is left to himself. On this account, a mountainous country is the best campaigning ground for popular levies. Expertness of an army through training, and that well-tempered courage which holds the ranks together, as if they had been cast in a mould, show their superiority in an open country. The talent of a general has most room to display itself in a closely intersected, undulating country. In mountains he has too little command over the separate parts, and the direction of all is beyond his powers. In open plains it is simple and does not exceed those powers. According to these undeniable elective affinities, plans should be regulated. Chapter 5 military virtue of an army. This is distinguished from mere bravery, and still more from enthusiasm for the business of war. The first is certainly a necessary, consistent part of it, but in the same way as bravery, which is a natural gift in some men, may arise in a soldier as part of an army from habit and custom, so with him it must also have a different direction from that which it has with others. It must lose that impulse to unbridled activity and exercise of force which is its characteristic in the individual, and submit itself to the demands of a higher kind, to obedience, order, rule, and method. Enthusiasm for the profession gives life and greater fire to the military virtue of an army, but does not necessarily constitute a part of it. War is a special business, and however general its relations may be, and even if all the male population of a country, capable of bearing arms, exercise this calling, still it always continues to be different and separate from the other pursuits which occupy the life of a man. To be imbued with a sense of the spirit and nature of this business, to make use of, to rouse, to assimilate into the system the powers which should be active in it, to penetrate completely into the nature of the business with the understanding, through exercise to gain confidence and expertness in it, to be completely given up to it, to pass out of the man into the part which is assigned to us to play in war, that is the military virtue of an army in the individual. However much pains may be taken to combine the soldier and the citizen in one and the same individual, whatever may be done to nationalise wars, and however much we may imagine times have changed since the days of the old condottieri, never will it be possible to do away with the individuality of the business, and if that cannot be done, then those who belong to it as long as they belong to it, will always look upon themselves as a kind of guild, in the regulations, laws, and customs in which the spirit of war by preference finds its expression. And so it is in fact. Even with the most decided inclination to look at war from the highest point of view, it would be very wrong to look down upon this corporate spirit, esprit de corps, which may and should exist more or less in every army. This corporate spirit forms the bond of union between the natural forces which are active in that which we have called military virtue. The crystals of military virtue have a greater affinity for the spirit of a corporate body than for anything else. An army which preserves its usual formations under the heaviest fire, which is never shaken by imaginary fears, and in the face of real danger disputes the ground inch by inch, which, proud in the feeling of its victories, never loses its sense of obedience, its respect for and confidence in its leaders, even under the depressing effects of defeat, an army with all its physical powers inured to privations and fatigue by exercise, like the muscles of an athlete, an army which looks upon all its toils as the means to victory, 
not as a curse which hovers over its standards and which is always reminded of its duties and virtues by the short catechism of one idea namely the honour of its arms such an army is imbued with the true military spirit soldiers may fight bravely like vendeans and do great things like the swiss the americans or spaniards without displaying this military virtue a commander may also be successful at the head of standing armies like eugene and marlborough without enjoying the benefit of its assistance we must not therefore say that a successful war without it cannot be imagined and we draw special attention to that point in order the more to individualize the conception which is here brought forward that the idea may not dissolve into a generalization and that it may not be thought that military virtue is in the end everything it is not so military virtue in an army is a definite moral power which may be supposed wanting and the influence of which may therefore be estimated like any instrument the power of which may be calculated having thus characterized it we proceed to consider what can be predicated of its influence and what are the means of gaining its assistance military virtue is for the parts what the genius of the commander is for the whole the general can only guide the whole not each separate part and where he cannot guide the part there military virtue must be its leader a general is chosen by the reputation of his superior talents the chief leaders of large masses after careful probation but this probation diminishes as we descend the scale of rank and in just the same measure we may reckon less and less upon individual talents but what is wanting in this respect military virtue should supply the natural qualities of a warlike people play just this part bravery aptitude powers of endurance and enthusiasm these properties may therefore supply the place of military virtue and vice versa from which the following may be deduced one military virtue is a quality of standing armies only but they require it the most in national risings its place is supplied by natural qualities which develop themselves more rapidly two standing armies opposed to standing armies can more easily dispense with it than a standing army opposed to a national insurrection for in that case the troops are more scattered and the divisions left more to themselves but where an army can be concentrated the genius of the general takes a greater place and supplies what is wanting in the spirit of the army therefore generally military virtue becomes more necessary the more the theatre of operations and other circumstances make the war complicated and cause the forces to be scattered from these truths the only lesson to be derived is this that if an army is deficient in this quality every endeavour should be made to simplify the operations of the war as much as possible or to introduce double efficiency in the organization of the army in some other respect and not to expect from the mere name of a standing army that which only the veritable thing itself can give the military virtue of an army is therefore one of the most important moral powers in war and where it is wanting we either see its place supplied by one of the others such as the great superiority of generalship or popular enthusiasm or we find the results not commensurate with the exertions made how much that is great this spirit this sterling worth of an army this refining of ore into polished metal has already done we see in the history of the macedonians under alexander the roman legions under caesar the spanish infantry under alexander farnese the swedes under gustavus adolphus and charles the second the prussians under frederick the great and the french under bonaparte we must purposely shut our eyes against all historical proof if we do not admit that 
the astonishing successes of these generals and their greatness in situations of extreme difficulty were only possible with armies possessing this virtue this spirit can only be granted from two sources and only by these two conjointly the first is a succession of campaigns and great victories the other is an activity of the army carried sometimes to the highest pitch only by these does the soldier learn to know his powers the more a general is in the habit of demanding from his troops the surer he will be that his demands will be answered the soldier is as proud of overcoming toil as he is of surmounting danger therefore it is only in the soil of incessant activity and exertion that the germ will thrive but also only in the sunshine of victory once it becomes a strong tree it will stand against the fiercest storms of misfortune and defeat and even against the indolent activity of peace at least for a time it can therefore only be created in war and under great generals but no doubt it may last at least for several generations even under generals of moderate capacity and through considerable periods of peace with this generous and noble spirit of union in a line of veteran troops covered with scars and thoroughly inured to war we must not compare the self-esteem and vanity of a standing army held together merely by the glue of service regulations and a drill-book a certain plodding earnestness and strict discipline may keep up military virtue for a long time but can never create it these things therefore must have a certain value but must not be overrated order smartness good will also a certain degree of pride and high feeling are qualities of an army formed in time of peace which are to be prized but cannot stand alone the whole retains the whole and as with glass too quickly cooled a single crack breaks the whole mass above all the highest spirit in the world changes only too easily at the first check into depression and one might say into a kind of rodomontade of alarm the french sauve-quipot such an army can achieve something through its leader never by itself it must be led with double caution until by degrees in victory and hardships the strength grows into the full armour beware then of confusing the spirit of an army with its temper end of book three chapters one through five recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia